This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Learning to Love Call of Cthulhu. Cinematic Gems. The Guy in Reach. And the Ossian Hoax. Once again, holding down the anchor sponsor slot is Phoenix, the magazine of Swedish role-playing hotness. You can tell it's Phoenix because it's spelled F-E-N-I-X. And you can tell it has hotness because among its contributors is gentleman scholar Kenneth Height. This February, Phoenix will launch an Indiegogo campaign for a Best of Phoenix anthology in English. Stretch Goals will expand its ambition to multiple volumes. Among its Heightian treasures, Dacian werewolves, Golden Vampires, and the enigmatically titled Once Upon a Time in the North. Plus, from a roster of other contributors, Singing Spellcasters, Drowned Oz, and the card game Phoenix Fighters. Plus the cartoon exploits of Burger Barbarian. Watch for it this February at an Indiegogo near you. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Joe Tyne asks Ken and Robin at length. <laughs> I have a problem. I don't like the Chaosium Call of Cthulhu RPG. And I just want to urge Joe to understand that we are a helping space here on the podcast. We do not immediately cast you into the outer darkness. Exactly. This is not a, a lengthy question. This is a case study. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Anyway, here's, here's our point is we love and support Joe despite his problem. I don't like the Chaosium Call of Cthulhu RPG. My first experience of the game was a poor one. Our one and only session with a keeper running beyond the Mountains of Madness consisted of two hours of character creation, one hour of bookkeeping to supply our expedition, ten minutes of role-playing, and one series of failed rolls where the Empire Party fell off a glacier and died. Following this experience, I picked up the D20 Call of Cthulhu game and ran it quite successfully for many years. Just recently, I secured a copy of Trail of Cthulhu to explore the Eternal Lies campaign. See, Joe's already on his way out of the wilderness. Right. Look at look at Joe. He's just punching back. He doesn't he doesn't uh he doesn't take it. When life hands him lemons, he makes uh lemon chicken tagine. But it bothers me that I still can't appreciate Chaosium's original, as well it should, and that's how we know that Joe is on the side of the angels because it bothers him. What edition and campaign can you recommend to properly capture what it is that you love about the Chaosium game? What do I need to do to get it right and really present my players with the best face? of Call of Cthulhu. Um, and before I ask you, Robin, I think that part of the problem here is that in his other experiences, he's been the GM, and of course, he obviously ran into a bad keeper situation with Beyond the Mountains of Madness. So, Robin, aside from don't be a bad keeper, what, what's your immediate uh, response to Joe's plea for our help? Well, without pulling down my massive copy of Mountains of Madness and finding the section on falling off a glacier, <laughs> this seems to me like a problem that you could easily encounter uh, probably in lots of adventures today, and certainly in all sorts of adventures written during the original classic flowering of role-playing, where often the scenario writer will simply follow the logic of there being rules to adjudicate something, and the rules say that there's such and such a consequence, and therefore allowing an extreme situation to come into effect where you can have a TPK, a 
total party kill, for those of you who are listening for non-role-playing reasons and don't know what that stands for. <laughs> and uh, therefore, in, and not just a TPK, but a really uninteresting, dumb, early TPK. Yeah, if the entire party had been killed by um, uh, Elder Things or a Shoggoth, they'd be saying, yeah, that's Call of Cthulhu, but falling off a glacier is, is just sad. Right, and also the emphasis, I mean, only half a session for character generation is actually pretty good for uh, <laughs> uh, games uh, anywhere you know, up till about three or four years ago when we started going, hey, wait a minute, does everybody really like four hours of character generation? Um, and so, and that creates a big investment. So if you were to envision a, any game that has a faster character generation system where you can go, oh, well, that's the the premise at the beginning, you know, that's just the, the teaser where you see the, the false party uh, go and get killed. And here now the real guys are showing up to see what happened to them and make sure that whenever you present an opportunity for everybody to die, you make sure that it's an interesting way for everybody to die or you don't do that. Um, so that, you know, the, the way to adjust that scene, let's say I'm doing my consultant thing on a, a trail of Cthulhu scenario. If someone has just rules for, you know, here's the possibility that everybody, if they fail their athletics rules, roll off the glacier and die. Well, A, it's somewhat less likely in gumshoe because you have more control over the way the rolls work and the rolls are not, you're, you don't start as low on the totem pole skill-wise as you often do in Call of Cthulhu. But all that aside, you can just uh, make sure as a scenario writer to go, well, here's the cool thing that happens if everybody falls off the glacier that's not everybody dying. And if you can't think of something cool, you just find a way to create the threat of everybody falling off the glacier so that the players feel like that is a possibility, but it doesn't actually ever happen. Therefore, turning an entire group of people off your game for life. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, th I think that part of the, I mean, I really have to come back to the fact that in one case, Joe is being run, and in the other case, he's running. He talks about being able to run D20 Call of Cthulhu very successfully, which doesn't surprise me. And of course, running Trail of Cthulhu is uh, like a beautiful dream of kitten bellies and uh, angel food cake. But the experience of being run badly is the sort of thing that can turn you off of any game. So I think that if Joe is looking to fall back in love with Call of Cthulhu, what he wants to do is go to a convention where there is a acclaimed Call of Cthulhu GM, and ideally he would go to Gen Con and run with uh, uh, Scott Glancy, who is one of the best Call of Cthulhu GMs in the business. But there are other uh, people that you can find out by asking around online. Certainly a, a guy like Joe, who is this capable, is able to probably to find the, the alpha GM in his convention circuit and just play through a session that's run by a really good GM and sort of feel the difference from that side. Um, obviously, since he's run uh, D20 Call of Cthulhu, he I, I suspect he knows full well how to run Call of Cthulhu himself. So if I'm just recommending a classic standard Call of Cthulhu campaign to sort of get everyone's beak wet and make them all really, really happy with it, I think I might recommend not so much a campaign, but a series of the really good one-shots. I might say, stick to Arkham Country, run you know some of the adventures in Return to Dunwich, definitely run Raid on Innsmouth sort of as your graduation scenario, because that is one of the best scenarios ever uh, written for the, for the game at all. But there's scenarios in the Arkham book, there's scenarios in the Kingsport book. I would say just look at those, figure out which ones fit your sensibility, run them as a bunch of singleton individual scenarios, get your feedback, and then if you really feel like taking on a, a mega campaign after playing Eternal Lives, I think that, you know, once you've run Eternal Lives, running Massive Nihilothotep will be 
well within your uh, your ambit, your your bailiwick. And if it is an older scenario, just look out for those little traps where the uh, process of thinking through what the consequences of what the scenario writer is putting down are uh, possibly not as well thought out as they would be today. But you can also get a situation, as you suggest, it's it's hard to tell whether this is something that the designer of the scenario ought to have caught ahead of time and not done, or whether uh, maybe there's nothing at all about falling uh, off the glacier, right? It's hard to, to go back in time and see what's the scenario writer and, and, and who's the GM. But as GM, you can always control for that. And even if you start running the everybody falls off the glacier scene and you see that this is going to end every, you know, the session midway through in a disappointing way, you can then pull out the stop. So it's, it's really, uh, I don't think even so much a question of call of Cthulhu per se as a question of, uh, knowing what not to do as a GM. The difficult question, I guess, to sort of expand, I think we've answered the question uh, yeah. as well as we're going to. So let's see where we can expand from that. And I guess one of the questions is if you're on the player end of that situation, if a really dumb result occurs in the middle of play that just stymies you or kills everybody off or just stops the thing from starting, somebody who's not really thinking through the consequences of what's going on. Another classic example is I heard someone once come up and tell me that they'd run in a Gen Con session where initially they were supposed to, the players were supposed to spot something on the horizon and that would start the adventure. And because everyone failed their spot rolls, mm -hmm. as again, one sometimes does in uh, basic role playing uh, in particular, because you start off with kind of low abilities that again, they were just stymied and you would think that it, uh, in this day and age at Gen Con that that wouldn't happen, but sometimes it does. So what, and maybe this isn't a fair question for either of us because we, uh, if people, if we're playing at a convention game in somebody else's game, which I maybe get a chance to do at really small conventions, but doesn't often come up, you're, we sort of would have a, a intimidating weight yeah, we we we, to, we, we any feedback we would give. We are we are um uh, like uh, unless of course we're running with Scott. In, in which case we yes. have no more weight than than mayflies. But and would not and would not need to exercise. Right, because yes, he, he's, he's if, knows, if, knows if what we're he's all doing. falling off a glacier and dying in Scott's game, it's because Scott's got something worse at the bottom of the it's glacier. Yeah, which, for because our we deserve it, and it will lead somewhere. Yeah. Um. But let's say that you're a player into somebody's game uh, at a convention or at home, a new GM and something like that happens. How do you respond other than to just walk away in disappointment? Is there any way to kind of go, you know, sort of the player's version of the GM's, are you sure you want to do that? Can mm -hmm. a player go, really? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, uh, so much of it comes down to the GM, right? Because the GM is not paying attention or is not um, willing to engage in that kind of story protection and not even story protection in the sense of they want their pet NPC to save the day or they want the ending that they see in their head, just the sense of protecting there being a story at all. Right. Um, it's sort of simulation protection right. to say, oh, well, here's a glacier, here's a bunch of guys on a glacier. If they all fall off, yes, so be people it. fall off glaciers all the time. But the, but the question of the GM being willing to say that, and some GMs might say, no, we're playing this because it is a simulationist experience. And, the um uh, the simulationist nature of it is is part of what the modeling is fun for that GM and maybe for some of their players. Then you know everyone falling off a glacier. What you do need to have is a second 
arrow in that quiver because um, just saying, well, there you go, good good game, tomorrow we're playing Savage Worlds, is not going to necessarily solve anything. Right, you could all passively, aggressively say, well, okay, our new characters, my old character, Michael Smith, cross it, Michael Smith, yes. my new character, Michael Smythe, change nothing else on your character sheet yeah. and... And start over. Having, um, having heard of this glacier in Antarctica, his goal. Yeah, I, I think if in the spot hidden session, the GM is going to want you to spot something, right? I mean, in, in, in your Gen Con experience, you know, no one spotted anything. The GM made a move, right? Was it an ambush thing where everyone is taken down like a herd of gazelles? Or is it a thing where, okay, who has the highest spot hidden? You spotted it anyway, and we keep going. Right. I, I don't want to out the story too much in detail in case the... GM is listening to this podcast, which is not impossible. <laughs> um, the players were supposed to spot something and follow it. So they're, they're supposed to note the existence of a thing that led to the plot. Right. Okay. So I guess they were just left twiddling their thumbs. Yeah, I guess as a player, you know, if you don't spot it, then you have to either do the thing that we always used to do in CFC. We'd say, okay, we didn't do spot hidden. Do I have an idea roll of what that might have been? Do I luck into a clue? Do I? And you just keep rolling until you make it in CFC is what we used to do as, as uh, players when we were stuck or what I would do as GMs when the players all blew their roles and I needed to move the, the story along. Or I would eventually just start saying, well, you have a 45% spot hidden. It's the best in the group. You uh, will see it. And then I would make sure that they succeed with difficulty as, as a GM, just to punish them for failing the role. I guess there'd be the Socratic suggestion. You would say, uh, as we're drowning, we don't happen to spot a, strange, ingenious ancient ice shelf, do we, <laughs> um, to sort of try and throw the, the GM a lifeline that they may realize that everything's gone a cropper, but not have an idea that they find plausible enough. You could uh, do that. And again, I, I guess it's a matter of the personal boundaries between you and that GM. But if, if the GM is stopping at you falling off the glacier and drowning, your relationship with them is going to be strained uh, <laughs> pr pretty much after that, unless you all just get together. And I guess in this case, they blamed the game mm -hmm. and, and not uh, the uh, the way that came out and the way that GM didn't uh, intervene. Yeah, Joe doesn't say how long he kept playing with that particular keeper. So uh, if if that keeper was you know really terrible at D&D &D and, and really terrible at Traveler and really terrible at everything, and then also really terrible at Call of Cthulhu, then it is a different problem than if that keeper just, you know, uh, was really good at those other games, but because it was Call of Cthulhu, they believed that they had to play it simulation style, and they had to be as brutal and killer as they always wanted to be in D&D &D but could never get away with. And that might be, you know, another kind of a problem. I want, before we get too much into the psychologize your GM, though, I do want to ask you, Robin, let's say you were going to run Call of Cthulhu or that you were, wanted to recommend to someone a Call of Cthulhu experience to have. Is there a published uh, Call of Cthulhu adventure, either from Chaosium or maybe from Pagan, that you would point to and say, this is the one where it's um, uh, it, it's just the kerosene of, of role-playing games and you pour it on anything and you'll start a fire? I think you covered most of them. And there was one that I mentioned in a previous episode and couldn't think of the title of. And somebody in the comment section remembered the title of it, and I still didn't remember it. Ah. So uh, there's uh, one in an early anthology about... Uh, uh, vampires in uh, New Mexico or Mexico. All right, it was the Secret of Castronegro. Secret of Castronegro. Yes, Thank right, you. Yeah. Uh, your memory, as always, uh, shines mine. So that that's a fun little contained one that has a sense of story about it and has a, an atmosphere. So uh, I think that's actually a really great one if you can track that down as a uh, 
beginning handleable scenario without the sort of epic scope of uh, Beyond the Mounts of Madness. Because I would submit to you that if you are uh, playing a uh, phone book sized adventure that you really do need to be asking yourself what happens if they uh, <laughs> fall off the glacier at Ardvark. Yeah, and the thing is, it may be a, a response to the famously deadly mass of Nirlathotep, where players will go on online and they'll say, well, we had over the total of the of the seven scenarios or six scenarios, however many actually it is, we had a total of 84 characters and four of them lived. And, and that's sort of like bragging rights, like, you know, you, you came up the beaches of Tarawa or something. Right, but it's not, well, my first character <laughs> fell off a glacier. Yeah, but it's, my second but it's much harder to replace characters in the middle of Antarctica than yeah. it is in the middle of, you know, Nairobi or New York City or Hong Kong. <laughs> my first, third character, a penguin, looked at him wrong. He died of shame as characters in a Thomas Hardy novel would. Fortunately, there was another party of explorers on the next glacier over, and they continued the story without a heartbeat missing. Yes. And I think that that's, you know, the, again, I think that there may have just been a, a category error that was made that was larger than, than anything, because I, I would hate to blackguard that, that GM if they were good at other things and just were, were misled and, uh, and, and broke themselves. The, um, yeah, I, th I think that, your your notion of those sort of self-contained scenarios is a good one. I don't know what the what the uh, what the prevailing ethos is now, and I don't know if it differs between people who've been playing primarily story games, where everyone is all you know hippies and in love, or if they've been playing primarily OSR, where it's all about you know getting back to the the, the original uh, traditions of Gary and Dave, or if they've been primarily playing just normal old Pathfinder. I don't know what happens if your Pathfinder GM suddenly you know slips a disc and. They're um, uh, they're running something and they accidentally uh, box you into a into a not even a no win but a no exit scenario. If there's a if there's a standard modality by which you say, uh, "Hey, bro, um, maybe there could be a a dying knoll here with a map that we could pick up and then follow to the storyline." I don't know how that works in the outside world. Yeah, I think that differs considerably even with different branches of Half Twenty, where yeah. Pathfinder certainly comes from the heroic. Tradition, uh, because its DNA is in third edition at that time at Watsi, there was a drive to make sure that you never die on the side of a mountain being eaten by worms, mm -hmm. that there's always something exciting going on. And, uh, you know, I would just doubt that the adventures would be written that way. But even, you know, a throwaway line that you're writing and not even intending to lead to sort of a narrative box can uh, be taken the wrong way and, and lead somebody there. So it's incumbent not just on the scenario designer, but on the GM to look ahead, see if you're headed for a box. If you're headed for somewhere that you think the adventurer is taking you somewhere annoying and stupid, don't do that. Yeah, don't don't go there. Or at the very least, always have um, a shadowy figure who's able to pick up the broken bodies of the players and put them somewhere worse, but different. And the but different is the key. Uh, you know, if, if they, you know, fell off the glacier and then they woke up in a chasm underneath Antarctica being operated on and vivisected by an elder thing, on the one hand, that's very, very bad, but they're not dead at the bottom of a glacier, and in theory, the story can continue from that point, although I'm not exactly sure how. Well, I think we've uh, beaten this question to death as if it is an explorer falling off a glacier, and it's we've, therefore... We've knocked it off a glacier, that's for sure. Yeah, it's time to head on to the next hut. Join us in composing a wily kenning or two in praise of sponsor Sand and Steam Productions and their game, 
War of Metal and Bone, whose longships bear down on Kickstarter even as we speak. Built with Fate Core, War of Metal and Bone lets you tell the stories of brave warriors, Jarls, bone-bonded giants, uh, not to be confused with, although possibly not indistinct from bone-headed giants, and their defense of their holdfasts. In addition to the awesomeness that is Fate Core, War of Metal and Bone adds some unique features. Bone-bonded or seer, thrall or jarl, War of Metal and Bone lets everyone play side-by-side side using the same excellent fate mechanics. Create your own holdfast and add to the world. Every campaign begins with the creation of your own unique holdfast. Every session will see you adding to the map you've made, uh, presumably making it progressively more Viking-y. This is your world. See how it changes. Form bonds with your party members, celebrate your warrior clan, and honor your history with your own sacred item. The war with the dwarves and their constructs rages across Midgard. What role will you play? The whir of sprockets and the irresistible aroma of buttered popcorn tells us that we've once again ventured into the dark and comforting confines of the cinema hut. And this week, as requested by listener Benjamin Blackberg, we're going to give you our hidden gems. Uh, these are films uh, that we're going to talk about in the quick hit vein of our various festival reviews, but the difference being that these are available now somewhere in the great land of cable and disc and streaming and uh, all sorts of other ways that you can uh, uh, get your entertainment. So, uh, Ken, I wondered if you would uh, kick things off with uh, your first suggestion of a hidden cinematic gem. Okay. Um, first of all, obviously, uh, you can go back to either Robin or I's uh, descriptions of the various film fests that we've been at, and a lot of those come out uh, now, um, have their, they've come out now on DVD and they're much easier to get to than when they were just being shown in Toronto or occasionally just being shown in Chicago. So I wanted to sort of start with something that I did not see at a film fest and I don't think I've, uh, reviewed in that context. And I don't think I've mentioned on this show, it's a film called Absentia. And I don't know if you know of it, Robin, it's a 2011 horror film. It's, uh, as far as I am concerned, possibly the greatest on-screen presentation of Arthur Mockin's universe. I think you've told me about this, uh, and that's why it's still in my mind, but retell it, please. Uh, it's directed by a guy named Mike Flanagan, and the, basically what he did was he got uh, a Kickstarter uh, going, and he got about $80,000, I think, to make this movie. It, the story is about a, um, uh, a woman whose husband uh, went missing, and uh, her sister is coming to sort of help her through the pattern. It's been seven years, so he can be declared legally dead. And so they're getting ready to declare him dead in absentia. And, of course, you know, things turn awful. And the, I don't want to spoil any more of it. I just want to sort of set that up. So it's about missing people, and it's about uh, this sort of weird connected tie uh, to a, a tunnel that is near their house. And it is the creepiest, most horrible-looking sort of underpassy footpath looking thing. If you live in an urban area, you see these, sometimes there's like a big street. And so they run a footpath over to connect one part of the park to another part of the park. So it's just not a fetching tunnel, not a fetching tunnel. So when Mike Flanagan gets his 80 grand to make the movie, he knows that he has to write a movie that will work with for 80 grand. So it can't have um, anything except like maybe a dolly uh, camera. He can't have anything, or maybe he can't even have a dolly camera, but and he can, and he can only work with people that he already knows and have already agreed to work with him for nothing. So he knows his actors and he knows it has to use this creepy tunnel. And so he wrote the script around that. And it is just 
perfect. It's it's amazingly good. I saw it on on Netflix. It's on Netflix. The, the budget was apparently seventy thousand dollars. It is just tremendous, and the every part of it is good, and everything that you read in Arthur Machen that you want in an Arthur Machen story is in there, including the echoes of a higher mythology that are never satisfactorily explained. It's just it's just terrific, and it's visually stunning. The guy really, you know, it, you know, I guess film what you uh, what you uh, uh, can't stop thinking about looking at. Maybe is the version of write what you know. But it, th- this tunnel was near Flanagan's actual house, so he's been walking past it. One assumes every day for many many years, and looking down it and thinking that's a creepy ass tunnel. And I think so. That this is the Don Cheadle of creepy tunnels. This is the Don Cheadle of creepy tunnels. Yes, very much so. And you know, I I think that uh, we could only be. Uh, made better if it was given its own show on Showtime. I think that would be really good. But I, I can't recommend Absentia too highly. It's probably the sixth or seventh best movie of 2011 looked at in retrospect. It was really, really good. The first film I want to mention is a 2006 film, which you might be able to find under its Hong Kong Blu-ray title of Battle of Wits or its North American DVD title of Battle of the Warriors. It's by a director named Jacob Chung. And it's a Historical epic starring Andy Lau. It's uh, set in the Warring States period of China in 370 BC. And Andy Lau plays this guy who's a wandering exponent of a pacifistic philosophy, the, the Mo Su or Mo Chi philosophy, as the subtitles have it. And he is going to spread his message of peace by going to a uh, fortress uh, run by the uh, prince of a local king and protecting it from its coming siege uh, by an enemy army. And uh, it's basically a siege defense procedural. And as the film goes on, the ways in which the fortress is attacked and the way in which he defends it become increasingly fanciful. Uh, There's a uh, a big bravura action sequence near the end that uh, I don't want to, I guess I shouldn't spoil it, but it, it departs uh, pretty decisively from history, although it's not fantasy. It's something that certainly would not happen, well, ever, and certainly not in that period. <laughs> but um, the, the thing that's interesting about it is not only these big scale action sequences, but the dramatic conflict within this character. If in a drama system terms, he would be, you know, man of peace versus man of war. So that the inherent contradiction is that he's trying to spread a philosophy of peace by making war. He's also trying to introduce his more egalitarian uh, viewpoint, the viewpoint that helps him win in a situation where the king and the prince, uh, the king especially, do not want that to survive his usefulness as a siege defender. So, and uh, uh, it's uh, part of this new tradition of films that fuse the big scale and budgets of mainland Chinese filmmaking with the sort of spirit, in this case, stars and uh, uh, rhythms of Hong Kong cinema. So uh, if that sort of historical action epic appeals to you at all, I would suggest that you check out uh, Battle of Wits, a.k.a. Battle of the Warriors. Cool. Um, sticking with the uh, with, with my horror theme, because it is my jam, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned to enough people Alien Raiders, which has possibly the worst title in the history of film, but it does satisfactorily completely obscure what the movie is about. 
Is this one set in a supermarket? This is the one set in the supermarket, yes. I second this uh, nomination. Okay. Now, and Robin seconds it, so Robin knows that the more I tell you, the less uh, fun you will have watching the film. But you will have great fun watching the film. And I can say that it is going to visibly uh, recall to mind or create in your mind your next or your first uh, Delta Green or Unknown Armies game. Uh, And it is... Uh, it, it's, it's really good. It, it works surprisingly well. It was part of that sort of, um, there's a little bit of found footage in it because it's part of that found footage era of horror, but it's not, uh, found footage in the crummy way. Uh, it's, it's intelligently used and the, for, and the main story, the main thing that's going on in the film is shot like a normal grown up with a normal camera and there's actual, uh, activity going on. And it's only 85 minutes long and I think probably what the first 45 minutes or 50 minutes are, as perfect an example of narrative suspense as you can have. And it's one of the things you can really only have in film. You can't really do it. I think in, and it may be in comic books, you could do it, but I, 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 you have to have a visual component to make that story work. And there's very few movies that when you look at them, aside from, you know, they had Kira Knightley in it. And so that's why there has to be a visual component. It's not like Anna Karenina needed to be a movie, right? It's a, it's a novel already, but alien Raiders is something that could pretty much only be, a movie, and it is a really successful one, and it's great horror. If you play Unknown Armies, if you play uh, Delta Green, you want to watch Alien Raiders just as your homework, and you know, you, if, you, if you can stay in it for half an hour and you don't want to keep watching it, well, I owe you a Coke. I'll throw a horror title into the ring. Uh, this is uh, Techno Horror. This is Beyond the Black Rainbow from 2010 uh, by a director named Panos Cosmatos. Uh, if the last name sounds familiar, he's the uh, son of uh, the director of uh, Rambo, I think it is. Um, and uh, this is a tribute to uh, the 70s sort of uh, techno horror of early Cronenberg. Um, it also has a very distinct sort of uh, Andrei Tarkovsky uh, stalker uh, Solaris uh, sort of feel to it. Meaning that, and here's a bit of a warning for you if you uh, need uh, everything to be driving and propulsive and full of technical events, that it is a very slow, deliberative <laughs> film for most of its uh, length until it gets murdery. Yeah. Um, and uh, so basically the premise is there's this weird uh, 70s looking installation, although it's no longer the 70s, and uh, there's a uh, young uh, teenager who's uh, there as what seems like a patient and then seems to be possibly an experimental subject who's uh, being psychoanalyzed or is she being studied for some sort of incipient power that she might uh, turn out to have and you learn that the uh, psychiatrist who's examining her is uh, not what she seems and that the uh, doings at this installation are of course uh, uh, quite sinister. So it's really very much a a mood piece. It uh, evokes its uh, era, I think, uh, really interestingly. And if you're willing to watch something that you might describe as a tough sit or uh, that some people, including my uh, lovely wife, didn't care for at all, uh, if this <laughs> is a sort of risk that you're willing to go for, I found that it paid off in sort of atmosphere and imagery and is uh, worth a look. Cool. And the word Tarkovsky is, is we've appended that. So there's, there's this, the warning has been put. Uh, I, I think I will mention something that I have mentioned in a review, but because I think it's really uh, gamer appropriate, uh, although I saw it at the Chicago Film Festival, um, I think that I'll, I'm going to highlight it here. It's a Dennis Dercor movie, and I'm very, very fond of the way that he thinks about story. I think that he's sort of a, 
you know, of, of all the people who are being called modern Hitchcocks, I think he's closer to the mark than most people, which means that he has sort of a cruel, sadistic eye on the on the proceedings, which, of course, as a uh, GM, is something to keep an eye on. Uh, Tomorrow at Dawn is a movie that uh, he made, um, and I think it got uh, showed at Cannes as well, so there's a certain uh, class to it. It's a beautiful film. Uh, much of the movie sort of takes place out in the French countryside, and so there's the sort of, you know, beautiful foggy light that they get when they shoot things in the French countryside. Uh, but the basic fundamental story is a brother who's basically his whole life is coming apart. And while this is happening, he is brought into the orbit of his other brother. Uh, uh, his, so his kid, his kid brother, Paul, it turns out, is getting way into Napoleonic uh, recreationism. Right. He goes out and he, and he you know, plays in the woods with other people who are recreating Napoleonic uh, battles. And so that sort of wargaming element to it has uh, an immediate uh, tie to gamers. And then, as it turns out, his brother is into the movement, and there is within that movement a uh, a petty tyrant. I think he's called the captain or the general, and he's trying to build his little cult of personality. So it's an incipient cult show. It's a gamer trapped in a game show. And, of course, the older brother, since he's not part of the game, is our player projection. We look at him as a player of the game, and it was... Um, uh, it was a good example of that sort of, of gameism in film, although it's not technically about a game, except the games of uh, 18th century French military honor. And as the title Tomorrow at Dawn can, does hint, there is a duel, and it is, it's a pretty good one. So I, I recommend Tomorrow at Dawn if you are a fan of Denis Dercourt or French uh, sort of um, uh, dysfunctional family drama, or if you're a French of that sort of you know, notion of a game that is larger than you thought it was when you started playing. I, I have a film that uh, also falls into the category of things you shouldn't explain very much about, uh, which is a black comedy from Ireland from 2008 by a director named Ian Fitzgibbon, and it's called A Film With Me In It. It <laughs> stars uh, Dylan Moran and Mark Doherty, and it starts out as a character portrait of a loser actor and his more confident also loser friend who doesn't acknowledge that he's a loser and uh, this guy's an aspiring actor and he's not doing very well and he's uh, both of them are having trouble paying the rent and they live in this big old uh, ramshackle house where they are uh, perpetually under threat of their uh, abusive landlord who seems like he could turn that property over in a much more expensive thing, but keeps it that way because he enjoys uh, lording it over uh, penurious tenants. And so it goes on for a while and you start wondering, why are they spending all of this time just setting up that this guy is a loser? Why do, what, this could be done in a much more compact fashion. But in fact, something altogether different, which I will not describe, <laughs> but uh, I will say that it could uh, serve as excellent fodder for a fiasco scenario occurs and uh, things spiral out of control and black comedy ensues and uh, that's a, a cool uh, treasure that I would uh, urge you to look for if you're looking for a fiasco or even a skullduggery inspired inspiration or inspiring inspiration. <laughs> inspiring inspiration. Yes. I'm going to mention uh, Forbidden Quest which is a film that I was turned on to by young Scott Glancy which is a film it's a Dutch film. It was made in the late 90s, I think. And it basically is a horror movie about a mock... I guess sort of it's a horror movie wrapped around a mockumentary, but it's about a Norwegian ship that sailed to Antarctica in 1905 and disappeared. 
And this movie is a modern-day film that is made as a 1931 documentary of the fate of that ship. And um, the footage of the of the of the trip to Antarctica is taken from historical Antarctic explorer footage from that era. So it's I, I liked it because first of all Antarctica, second of all creepy, mysterious, you know, period horror, and third of all I just liked the the sort of the the, the technical quality of it, the, the ability to um, blend those those old footages into this sort of imaginary story. And I I think uh, the guy who made it is a guy named Peter Del Poot or Del Poit. And he is, he's a Dutchman, and the, it's on your Netflix uh, now, and so you can go and, I don't know if you can stream it, but you can definitely um, uh, uh, get it on disc. And it's just a, uh, you know, a, a, another example of why if you uh, have a, a good idea, your budget is almost irrelevant, because it just really carries it through. I, I think it, it's really good. It, it's, it's just a great example of what it is, and it's a nice... Example of someone reaching back into a previous uh, film language and trying to speak in it, which is something that I don't think enough people do anyway. I don't think enough people even know that there are other film languages, much less try and uh, interpret them and, and talk in them. Uh, well, at the risk of uh, leaving this with uh, you having given one more recommendation than me, I see that the proprietors of the Cinema Hut have turned the house lights up and they're waiting to uh, clean in between the seats, so we'd better scarper to our next hut. Sponsor this week is Atlas Games and their beloved time-honored storytelling card game, Once Upon a Time. As you might have been able to guess from that pressy, in Once Upon a Time, players tell a story together using cards. Each player has a number of cards with fairy tale elements on them. Like a dragon, a stepmother, a journey, a palace. Each player also has one ending card. Like, and so his wound was healed, but his heart remained forever broken. To play Once Upon a Time, one player starts telling a story and laying down their element cards. For example, once upon a time, a brave knight set out on a grand adventure. And then you play your knight card. But other players can get control of the story. When a new player takes over, they continue where the last player left off. Weaving in their own element cards. The goal is to play all your elements and then play your ending card so the story makes sense. Great for role players. Great for kids who are usually better at it than adults. Great for fiction writers to sharpen storytelling, if not editing, skills. Pyramid Magazine called it one of the best games of the millennium. Games Magazine called it the best family card game of the year. Designed by, among others, James Wallace of Baron Munchausen and Nobilis fame. The third edition of Once Upon a Time is out now, with a bunch of expansions and more on the way. But Atlas Games has a problem. They still have copies of the second edition left. For a limited time, Atlas is blowing out the still great second edition at a liquidation rate that includes shipping and handling? Check it out on the web at atlas-games.com slash Robin. So, what are the key things to remember? Once Upon a Time is a card game that's great for role-playing and storytellers. Check. It's an award-winning game created by a towering genius of gaming. Check. There's a limited time chance to check it out at a liquidation pricing. Check. And all the details are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. Indeed they are at atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin. 
Is it a debonair trilby, a dashing pork pie, or perhaps a sober Homburg? All we know is there's one among my many hats, or in this specific case, among Robin's many hats. And among Robin's many hats is a hat that, whatever its actual shape, we know is going to be described within an inch of its life because it is another Jack Vance hat. Robin, tell us about the gay and reach. Well, first of all, I'd like to note that Sober Homburg was my least favorite Dick Tracy villain. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, he, he worked. I think he worked within the story. So the, the guy in reach is my new role-playing game, yet another new role-playing game, just months after the official release of Hill Folk. This is one that's actually been in the pipeline for a while and has finally uh, worked its way with wit and stealth through the Palgrain Press pipeline to emerge as a uh, 6x9 format, uh, but 100-page, uh, very focused RPG that adapts the science fiction stories, or at least a cycle of connected science fiction stories, including the Demon Prince's uh, five-part series and uh, the three-part uh, Araminta Station series and Port of Call and Luralu and the Night Lamp, adapts uh, all of these stories set in the Gaian Reach, which covers a vast expanse of uh, time as well as space and it's all about bringing his uh, elegant uh, evocative uh, vengeance ridden fiction into a role-playing format so it's a companion piece to the dying earth role-playing game and when i set about designing it i thought that it would be a game run on the skullduggery engine that powers the Dying Earth role-playing game with little bits and pieces of gumshoe sprinkled onto it. And as I read all of the books, and it was a great uh, spring and summer spent uh, reading all of those books, it became clearer to me that they are all investigative in nature and that they're actually the, the structural underpinnings of them are very different than the Dying Earth books, even though on occasion, uh, in fact, quite frequently, the dialogue between characters is very similar. And in fact, even some of the names of places recur in his science fiction world uh, and also appear in The Dying Earth. And I don't think they're meant to be part of the same continuity of just he had a name to think up and he spent his whole career thinking up names. And occasionally he reused a couple of them. Um, but at any rate, uh, it became apparent that there was a very common structure in which there was an injustice done at the beginning of uh, each story or in the backstory uh, in some cases is in the case of the demon princes which is about tracking down five interstellar supervillains one for each of the five novels and uh, uh, destroying them for the act of uh, uh, killing uh, his parents and destroying his community the lead character Kurt Gerson um, that in each of these instances it's a detective story about getting revenge so that made it a, clear that uh, we had to go to gumshoe as the engine for it, and B, that the core activity of the game would be getting revenge. So this is the guy in reach, the role-playing game of interstellar vengeance. <laughs> so the, the the core story then is tracking down uh, a, a demon prince, a sixth demon prince, to deliver to them a suitable revenge. Now, is the goal of the of the game, or does the game open itself up to the allowance that uh, I mean, one of the great things about the the Demon Princes is that it's a it's a very singular dual uh, mechanic, right? That's one guy against a Demon Prince, and he slowly dismantles the Demon Prince's army of of thugs and operatives, and gets right to that guy, figures out his weakness, and crushes him. Now, with five or six guys going after a Demon Prince, 
I mean, I assume that there are me- ways and means of making that not uh, seem like an unfair fight, but is there a point at which in the confrontation it's expected that the five or six players will turn on each other and um, uh, say, well, now that we're at the center of Quandos Vorn's mighty empire with all this um, uh, wonderful stuff lying around, it would be foolish to let it go to waste. Well, that in fact happened at the climax of the in-house playtest. <laughs> but to, to back up for a sec, the reason that six against one doesn't feel like it's going to be an easy thing is that you all together on the table create Quandos Vorn, the interstellar criminal that you all want to band together and track down. And part of it is just the usual thing of adapting fiction, which tends to feature one protagonist into the ensemble adventure that is standard in role-playing. And so that's just the the thing that you always do with any uh, property. But also uh, what you do is you collaboratively decide who Quandos Vorn is by going around the table and each person adds an element to it. So you go around and each person uh, decides what it is that Quandos Vorn did to them, and then you go around deciding why isn't it easy to take vengeance on him. So by the time you've gone through four to six people, each of which comes up with a reason why he is very, very difficult to get to, uh, that gives you the formidability of Quandos Vorn that uh, makes him a much bigger figure than any single PC and therefore requires them to band together to get him. And you also have considerable leeway in creating the character backstory for your character, even though the character build system is like Skullduggery, an instant process of uh, putting together sets of random cards rather than the more step-by-step sort of point build uh, system that you would get in a standard uh, gumshoe game. And so, for example, in the in-house test, uh, Chris Huth, who also coincidentally laid out the book and did uh, some of its beautiful uh, line drawing illustrations. And, and if you haven't d- seen that cover, by the way, that cover is one of the four or five best role-playing game covers I've seen in forever. I mean, it's really, really good. I mean, it's a good piece of, I mean, I'm not saying that other people's dragons and dwarves and whatnot are not attractive dragons and dwarves, but this is something that looks like it was designed in an environment in which bad covers are punished. It, it looks like an album <laughs> cover or a British paperback cover. It's something in a, it's like an alien that came from a, a heavy gravity planet to, to, to defend us from, from, uh, from Terra Man. It is a really good cover. Really great graphic presentation that evokes the paperbacks of the 60s without actually being like them in any way. Um, which is uh, really uh, quite fabulous. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, and also I, I would recommend to all role-playing game designers that if you want to have really great illustrations of an adventure, run the artist through that adventure. <laughs> <laughs> you don't yeah. have to. You don't have to give him any art direction. Turns, other, turns out that's just, that's the uh, that's the other way to do art notes. <laughs> yes, just draw me some of them pseudo arthropods you ran into earlier, Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anyway, you can define things about your character above and beyond what your character can do. And uh, the thing that uh, Chris defined was that he was in fact a practice clone of Quandos Vorn, that Quandos Vorn had an army of clones and did various experiments on them in uh, in an attempt to uh, prolong his own life, and that he was a discarded Quandos Vorn clone. So in the climactic episode, as the um, we decided that this was the final episode of the series, and the uh, uh, or actually became apparent during the episode that this should be the final climactic episode, as the spacecraft was sort of hurtling toward a cliff, they finally uh, the group of them finally killed 
Quandos Vorn, and then of course Chris cry, cries, I am Quandos Vorn, at which point all of the other players, dot, 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 mm -hmm. turned to their guns and blasted him to smithereens as well. So uh, that was as fun an illustration of what you can do with this game and as uh, fun an answer to your question about when the players turn on each other as I could possibly think of. <laughs> so when you uh, did that in the playtest, did you then say, well, that was so much fun, I'm going to... Uh, call it out in either the how to run this game section or in the in the in the rules or is it just a if if you are, have players who have been thinking more about the usual suspects than they you have know, been about. I sort of feel even like I'm cheating by mentioning it <laughs> okay. on this podcast right and uh, you referred earlier to your Elizabethan game that came out so wonderfully well because of all the spontaneous things that happened in it and that there's a uh, it's not as much fun to have that suggestion floated to you uh, and then try to work toward it as to have that come up absolutely spontaneously based on the collaboration and what happens in the moment between the players. And so uh, I wasn't actually tempted at all to point people in that direction because you want to find your own creativity rather than trying to recreate what I did with my original group. That's fair enough. So speaking of uh, things that you uh, found that were fun to put in, what kind of new game mechanic-y rules elements can Gumshoe or Robin fans look forward to in Guy and Reach? I mean, you talked about it being sort of a Gumshoe with Skullduggery elements. Is there a, a way that those two interacted uh, harmoniously or, pro or productively? Or is there some third thing that you had to invent to, to sneak in and you're hoping that uh, mechanics... Uh, fans will will take note on and hook on what is there anything like that in in the design i think hybridizing the two rules was basically uh enough of a difference that it will be of interest to both gumshoe fans and to dying earth fans uh and hopefully to people who are you know coming to um both games fresh so uh for example repurposing the uh taglines into a benefit that would be of use to uh gumshoe uh players so uh, in the original Dying Earth, they uh, they were basically your ways of getting experience points. In Skullduggery, they become a currency that you use in play. Well, the step here is obviously to make them, among other things, a way of getting refreshes in uh, Gumshoe. Uh, you will note that the familiar interpersonal abilities from Gumshoe have uh, been imported uh, using... Uh, Vancy and appropriate means of persuasion. So there's a punctilio instead of a bureaucracy, for example. So it's a, really a matter of sort of combining the two flavors of those things. And uh, I, I think that uh, if you're unfamiliar with Skullduggery, which I think most people will be because it doesn't sell nearly as well as Gumshoe does, I think people will uh, like the easy-peasy uh, three-card uh, Monty uh, character generation. So there's plenty new for you if you're uh, uh, familiar with one of those games and, and not the other. And if you're familiar with both, seeing how they've been interwoven, I hope, will be interesting to people as well. And in uh, terms of uh, Vance fans, is there going to be some uh, new sort of... In, I mean, you talked about already looking at them all as procedurals or all as uh, mysteries to be solved in... Uh, or problems to be solved, perhaps, is the larger way to put that. Is there some other insight for Vance fans that you either gathered when you reread all the Gay and Reach stories, or in some cases read them for the first time? He said slightly accusingly, and <laughs> uh, that that uh, like if I like to think that when a Lovecraft fan reads something like Shadows Over Phoneland, that they 
not only get to enjoy the scenarios, which are all terrific, but they get to enjoy, oh, I can now sort of relate Lovecraft to the universal horrors in a way that I had thought was not possible. Is there something that happens there where you are connecting Jack Vance maybe more closely to our more familiar space opera understanding or anything like that? I think if you've read the book separately that you're not quite aware of the extent to which they uh, almost invariably use the same vengeance structure. And sometimes the original act uh, that has to be avenged is quite picayune, as in a Port of Call where the uh, character gets pitched off his boat by his capricious aunt to uh, a horrible murders that propel the vengeance of Nightlamp, that they all really follow a partly a mystery structure. And we know now that Jack Vance's um, mystery novels yes. are becoming yes, available are. in ebook form. Um, and uh, so it's interesting to go and read those and see uh, the structure without the uh, characterization that you're familiar with from the fantasy and the science fiction. So it's it's really about, I think, making clear the extent to which these are crime procedural set in a Baroque science fiction far future. I guess I understand that there's going to be a separate book that's sort of the Guy and Reach Atlas or Guy and Reach Gazetteer, something that gives the, the background of the, of the science fiction universe for people who are not uh, familiar with the whole thing. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Vancean uh, experts and uh, text comers uh, Jim Webster and uh, Peter Freeman are uh, or were hard at work and put together a uh, sort of a complete uh, gazetteer of the world that sort of reads uh, as an in-world document. And that's uh, there is there are some descriptions of worlds in the uh, book, and it encourages you actually, as in Ash and Stars, to create the world that goes with your mystery. Uh, certainly, the size of the guy in reach uh, allows you plenty of opportunities to create your own worlds. You're not stuck just revisiting the exact same worlds that he described. So there's a few examples in the main book. And then for the, uh, if you are the sort of player who wants to visit the stuff that you remember specifically from the books and and uh, sort of walk those paths again, there's the uh, companion gazetteer for that. Cool. I think that uh, unless you have some final tidbit uh, to taunt people with, that we will pursue our vengeance out of the uh, a mini hat's closet and into our next hut. Your plan has signal merit. And from the whirring of chronotones and the clacking of time gears, we can tell that our final hut contains... Ken's Time Machine, and this week, due to a so far undiscussed adventure in which Ken went to the heart of the Time Labyrinth, entered a recursive loop, and met Jorge Luis Borges, who we talked about in a previous episode, and received this assignment from him, uh, which uh, the forces of Time Incorporated are only too happy to endorse, and that is to rescue the reputation of James McPherson, an 18th century writer who, uh, he was a Scot and he wanted to uh, bring Scottish mythology to the forefront and uh, wrote uh, a series of epic poems. Uh, and uh, he unfortunately uh, wrote them as if he had discovered them rather than writing them based on uh, the source material. And so uh, he's sort of a responsible for what, is, at least in the English language, is considered a literary version of the Piltdown Man hoax. Uh, but Borges 
uh, really loved uh, McPherson and uh, wished that his uh, that he had just been accepted as a writer who had worked on things based on sources and not as a literary hookster. So before we get going, uh, I just thought we'd give people a taste of what his uh, epic poems, which are really mostly written in sort of a prose format or sometimes in a uh, closet drama format. But here's, uh, here's what they would uh, sound like. And this is from Fingal. Cthulhan, calm, the chief replied. The spear of Connell is keen. It delights to shine in battle, to mix with the blood of thousands. But though my hand is bent on fight, my heart is for the peace of Aaron. Behold, thou first in Cormac's war, the sable fleet of Swaran. His masts are many on our coasts, like reeds on the lake of Ligo. His ships are forests clothed with mists, when the trees yield by turns to the squally wind. Many are his chiefs in battle. Connell is for peace. Fingal would shun his arm, the first of mortal men. Fingal, who scatters the mighty as stormy winds the echoing Kona, and night settles with all her clouds on the hill. So this stuff is very much grist for people who are interested in heroic fantasy and their heroic tradition. So Ken, what enables you to go back in time and rescue the literary reputation, therefore the attention given to the works of James McPherson, a.k.a. Ossian? Um, I think that there's an interesting set of parallels to be made. And first of all, I should point out that if it were not um, uh, the sainted Jorge Luis Borges giving me this uh, mission by his own hallowed hand, I might have pushed back on it a little more because James McPherson was also kind of a jerk. He uh, was a uh, fervent supporter of Lord North, who of course is uh, the devil. And uh, he, okay, well, uh, let, uh, unpack that. Uh, who is Lord North, and, and what was devilish about him? Lord North was the uh, prime minister under King George the Third, who had such temerity as to refuse America its independence when we asked nicely in 1775, and uh, instead sent his filthy redcoats to try and force the hated British tea down our throats with, uh, or rather the hated British tax on tea down our throats. We like the tea well enough. And um, uh, therefore had to be set right by George Washington. And Lord North, uh, as with many people who find themselves at one end of a losing war, uh, decided to keep doubling down and wound up causing an awful lot of uh, trouble and very nearly derailed the uh, uh, democratiz- the democratizing trends within the, uh, the British uh, sort of political system. And fortunately for him, uh, his power was based on George III being capable of running a government, and when George III lost it, uh, that sort of ended a lot of North's uh, influence. But uh, not uh, if James McPherson had had anything to say about it. He was a firm supporter of Lord North in all of his uh, in all of his ways. And then when uh, McPherson bought his estate in Invernessshire, he gave it a dumb name, Belleville, which is not a Gaelic name. I'll point out it's a stupid um, uh, Latin name, and he then would. Uh, Punish the, the 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 tenants, the crofters, for calling it its old uh, cool names instead of Belleville. And he had a, a bunch of uh, illegitimate children who he made the uh, heirs entailed to Belleville and said that they would cut off their inheritance if they referred to uh, the, the place by its old name. So his his uh, sort of personal uh, copybook I consider to be too blotted to want to. Um, just do the straight thing of going back and doing a lengthy time travel based three card Monty with a fictional uh, manuscript of Ossian so as to bolster his reputation forever. I think that it's more fun to still go back to ancient Ireland with a copy of um, McPherson's Ossian and get a bunch of uh, druids and such to uh, write it out in uh, or write 
a version of it to sort of do it, their free translation of, of McPherson's Ossian in Gaelic, uh, write it down on their, on their little, um, uh, uh parchments and uh, then hide it in a, uh, attic somewhere in Scotland such that when, uh, McPherson is called upon to present proof of his, uh, of his Fingal, I am able to, you know, show up at the, at the moment and confound Samuel Johnson, who I should point out was also against American independence. I think uh, most people in England at the time were, I would, I would think. Yes, I think that probably a majority were, although Edmund Burke was not, and therefore, there you go. But uh, I've always trust content from Edmund Burke, people. And uh, Edmund Burke is one of the people who I think uh, read Ossian when it came out, and they said, look... Edmund Burke, it totally justifies your statement about the sublime. And he says, oh, that's not what I meant at all. I didn't, I didn't mean it to make Ossian. <laughs> but um, Samuel Johnson, when presented with Ossian, thought it was garbage because uh, Samuel Johnson hated Scotch people, as living with James Boswell might do. And so uh, when someone said, um, do you suppose any man alive could have written Ossian? And uh, Johnson said, yes, any man alive and many women and many children. <laughs> <laughs> is one of the great literary takedowns of all time. So anyway, that is what sort of shuts Ossian down in the English, and or rather the British literary establishment, is uh, McPherson's inability to present the actual uh, source manuscripts from which he got Fingal. And I think that the way to uh, bolster his reputation, ironically, not his reputation as a poet, but his reputation as a uh, transcriber of Ossian, would be to present a real, quote-unquote, Ossian that one has, you know, gotten uh, written back in the time that is historically, you know, noticeable. It's uh, Pierre Menard's Ossian. It's Pierre well. Menard's Ossian, just for, just for uh, uh, Dr. Borges. And then the, the, the second half of that trick is sometime in the 20th century, well after it has still had its effect on um, uh, the Romantic period, which by and large, I think worked out pretty well from a literary point of view. There's some groovy paintings. There are many groovy paintings and a great deal of lovely poetry. And once it has uh, sort of run its course there, and I should point out that Ossian's Im influence in Europe post-dates its debunking by Johnson and by the other uh, scholars, including Irish hist historians and uh, who objected to it because it sort of Scottish Scottishifies a lot of Irish uh, legend and history because... Uh, the Scots were, of course, migrant Irishmen back in that day. The, um, uh, but the, uh, the Scot, the Irish objected to it, which, uh, I guess could bring us back to Burke if we really wanted to go there. But the trick then is to prove in the 20th century that the manuscript that Macpherson used was itself a forgery, right? That it had been faked up. And it's easy enough to swap it out for a different manuscript given the power of the time machine. But, so that by the time McPherson has been taught and taught, or Ossian has been taught and taught and taught and is part of the canon in, tw in the 20th century, we then discover, haha, at the last minute, that nope, it was McPherson who was the poet, but we've spent all of this time establishing Ossian as this great work. And so I think that that has an, another lovely Borgesian touch of what is the author and what is the manuscript and exactly where do, do, do these things come from? And I think that would make a fun thing to have the MLA fight about for the last 50 years instead of um, uh, the number of um, um, uh, left-handed people who are writing books. And uh, so they, they could have a big 
uh, whoop-de-doo about something that's actually important in the question of literature, which is to say, where does literature come from? How do you find originality? Given that Ossian is used to bolster the authenticity of the romantic sense of self, which is behind the entire literary establishment, given that Ossian was a forgery, what does that say about the romantic sense of self and the literary establishment? I think those are valuable questions. That well, the, if, the deconstructionists would love that as proof that uh, the... Uh meaning of uh, of authorship is nil. Uh, the deconstructionists would love it if they ever got past the thing that was obvious when Aristotle said it. Um, but the uh, but but I think that we could have kind of an interesting, uh, like I say, a Borgesian meditation with that. I'd, I'd like to really quick make a parallel, if you will, between Ossian and the Kalevala, which uh, the Kalevala, the Finnish national epic, as it were, put together by a guy named Elias Lonrot, who went around in the... Uh, bleak spaces of Finland and gathered a whole bunch of folk songs and then edited them into a 19th century romantic epic poem with, that became the model for, among other things, Hiawatha by Longfellow. And um, no one ever goes around and gets into big arguments about, oh, the Kalevala is not authentic. Oh, the Kalevala is terrible. Oh, we all hate the Kalevala. No, everyone loves the Kalevala. And I think everyone also pretty much recognizes that it is both the authentic representation of Finnish tradition in a 19th century voice, and a great piece of work by Elias Lonrod. I don't think that there's anyone really that doubts the degree to which Lonrod had an octorial hand in it, and I think if we could get a place where Ossian was just a Scottish Kalevala, I think that's sort of the, the happy medium, and that's sort of what I would be trying to aim for, and I suspect I'd probably wind up having to make four or five different versions of a forged Ossian just to get a proper Vinland map or Voynich manuscript level of confusion into the whole mix so that um, uh, every dogmatic statement about it could be undercut with shocking new evidence. So does this uh, get you uh, in the same room with James McPherson at all, or are you just operating at a remove in various periods of uh, archaic Scotland? I'm fairly sure that I have to have found the Ossian manuscript um, and then you know give it to James McPherson and say, well, if they're looking for your Fingal manuscript, here it is. And I think it's even more fun if you do it after he's forged the Fingal manuscript. Right, because <laughs> the, the weird paradox about this guy is that he, you know, if he has any influence at all, the influence that he has is an artistic influence on all sorts of, uh, on the romantic movement and on, on painting, but that he did not want to be seen as an artist at all. He wanted to be seen as an uh, eth ethnographer, as a definer of a culture. So uh, that would lead to a, a very interesting uh, discussion uh, over whiskey uh, when you... Uh, pulled out these things and it happened to match the stuff that he knows that he made up. Yeah, I think that that, um, and if it causes uh, McPherson sleepless nights, then that's a, that's a bonus. I think it's, it's, uh, it's kind of fun to, to look at these guys because the guys that I sort of feel sorry for, um, when he comes up with his first fragments of ancient poetry collected in the Highlands of Scotland, he does that in um, uh, 1760 and some of that is real and some of that is, is, is made up. And there's a bunch of guys that are all really excited that they've got this old Highland poetry and they all club together and they offer him basically to, to you know, they, 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 uh, rich guy Kickstarter, his gathering of more manuscripts. And it's at this point where McPherson knows he's pretty much gathered everything he can gather and they're sending him out into Invernessshire to gather more stuff. And he gets some manuscripts from people and has them translated by people who can read Gaelic, which he can't. But he, but he doesn't really, I mean, you, you have the sense that he's got, well, they're paying me all this money. They kind of expect something to happen. And, and I think that it's that sort of 
Uh, it's those guys that I think I would have more fun drinking with because they're the ones who are really concerned with, um, you know, that there be a Scottish national literature. And given that they're uh, doing this right at the same time that, for example, David Hume is reinventing philosophy, Adam Smith is explaining how capitalism works, um, you know, uh, all of the Scottish Enlightenment is, is happening all at once as the um, uh, antidote to the French Enlightenment, the much-needed antidote to the French Enlightenment. Um, I think that those guys are probably the guys that I would want to be... Um, uh, uh, hanging out with. So what I'm what I'm hearing here is that the hoax was just a Kickstarter stretch goal that got out of hand. Yes, exactly. I think that it's one of those deals where you realize that you can't afford to ship the hoodie, and so you have to do something else. The um, yeah, the the, the uh, another thing you could possibly do. I'm not exactly sure if the dates line up, but it would be fun if I could somehow hide my copy of the f- fake Ossian that proves that it's a fake in a cabinet belonging to Deacon Brody the guy who was the secret uh, master of Edinburgh Thieves, who it turns out is the model for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Stevenson. I think if you can sort of bring that in, I think you've guaranteed that, uh, you know, it will be covered in pop nonfiction articles in magazines. You know, certainly there will be plenty of pieces in the Atlantic or Slate or other middlebrow uh, journals, and that'll get it out into the public consciousness instead of just like you say, for deconstructionists to kiss over. So I guess, uh, are there any other sort of discoveries that you would want to uh, make while uh, tooling around 18th century uh, Scotland? Or have we pretty much covered the Ossian exploit that you intend to go off and execute now? I think if I get to drink whiskey with um, uh, Dr. Hone and the other uh, Scottish patriots, and I get to drink sherry with uh, Adam Smith, and I get to drink gin with uh, Samuel Johnson, then I've probably had about as much fun as anyone in the 18th century ever possibly could have. Well, uh, in that case, on the mention of fun and time travel, I should mention that this segment of Ken's Time Machine is sponsored by the Time Watch RPG Kickstarter. This is Kevin Culp's uh, wild and crazy fun uh, time travel gumshoe game, which, uh, as we speak, is uh, roaring up the charts at Kickstarter. So uh, when this uh, drops, you will still have time to uh, jump in and... uh, Get the uh, nearest thing you can to the Ken's Time Machine role-playing game. <laughs> yes, drinking rules, uh, perhaps not included, but perhaps included uh, well, by speaking now. Speaking of stretch goals, Ken, <laughs> That's right, there we go. E- email Kevin when we're done this That's podcast. That's right, I, I, I very well might. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Phoenix. Sand and Steam Productions. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Ensure yourself against glacier accidents by clicking the donate button at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>